Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's five o'clock on Friday afternoon. My name's Jacob, here with you on Community Radio Station 3CR, and this is a Friday Rave. Okay, well, it's been another big week here in beautiful, rainy Melbourne at the budget. More pollies found to be ineligible to be sitting in the big white house under the hill. We had a big trade union rally, and of course, let's not mention the war. Um, well, where are we going to start? Maybe the trade union rally. To start with, it was great to see so many people. You out? Were you there? I'm here joining. I'm James is with me here today. Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to be in the studio. I'm usually here very early on a Monday. It's very different being here on a Friday afternoon. Monday morning. I know it's hard, isn't it? Well, it no, it's it's always beautiful. I mean, and thankfully, I haven't had too many mornings like we've had this morning. But yeah, well, I've just remembered just when I said that, and I said it's hard. Just when I said it's hard, I'm um, I'm going to be on um, what's what what's it called in the morning? Asia Pacific Currents for AAW Welligan tomorrow morning. So. And um, we'll see what's happening. See what's happening there. Have I got? Um, just give me your mic test, James. Hello, I'm. I can. I can see the mic is on, but I. Oh, there, there we go. You are. There you are. There you are. Sorry about that. We got James with us, James Brennan, who's normally here on Monday morning, and we were just talking about how wonderful it is coming in and um, in the nice weather. Anyway. Well, yeah. It's always it's good to see the studio and to be on air at different times. You get to. Well, different people get to hear different voices at different times. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, we did have, we had a big uh, union rally on Wednesday and we also had May Day on the Sunday as well. May Day was good. May Day was good. The union rally though, 100,000 people on the streets in a display of workers' power. It's a... Uh... A display of workers' power. Was it? Oh, I don't know what it was, mate. But, um, I mean, look, it's always good to see 100 people, 100,000 people. It's always good to see 100 people, for fuck's sake, you know. But it's good to see 100,000 people on the streets. And and because of the power and the passion, I think the... the um, We're invoking some midnight oil there. Power oh, no, 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 no. But I guess the task now is to keep the momentum for real change going. I mean, I... Not quite sure which rules they wanted to change or exactly what they wanted to change them to. I don't think that was ever made clear. But, um, you know, let's not let it be hijacked into a change to government rather than a change to rules campaign because I remember the absolute despair I felt back in, when was it, 2006 um, at the MCG when we had that Fill the G rally um, to get rid of work choices in Howard and when they had the Your Rights at Work worth fighting for, printed on the ground at the G, and they peeled it off and it had worth voting for. Yeah, that was definitely a low movement, a low moment in the um, workers' movement. But, I, I mean, I think that to take the cynical hat off for a moment, I think that... I never take the cynical hat off, mate. It is, it is great to see so many people out there. And, you know, there are clearly a lot of laws that 
need to be broken. And, uh, you know, I think that one of the things we've seen over the last little while is a lot of small business owners, in particular around the hospitality sector, that are really having to, uh, you know, cough up and, and to pay some fines and to actually look at paying workers. And we've seen a lot of uh, kind of kickback from business groups and things. Well, you know, well, what are we going to do? We're not going to be able to make our business run. <sighs> and I think clearly the answer is that if you can't afford to pay people properly, then you shouldn't be having that business. Exactly. If you, exactly. If you can't afford to employ people, shouldn't employ people. But, you know, a few things changed. It wasn't just a graphic designer changing work choices to fair work, you know. People were still tortured on Manus. Fracking took off big time. Um, single parents' pensions were cut. Homelessness continued to grow. We did get the misogyny speech from Prime Minister Gillard, so I guess we can forgive him for everything else. <laughs> but um, speaking of former Prime Minister Gillard last night, she joined Hillary Clinton on stage at the convention centre. The place was absolutely packed. 5,000 people, mate. 5,000 people going to hear Hillary Clinton and... Julia Gillard at the convention spinner. Some of them some of them paid, you know, two hundred and two hundred, most paid two hundred and fifty, two hundred and eighty, then I think five hundred dollar tickets. Um so it's a lot of money went back there. But um none of them it seems saw the irony of the former US First Lady, former Secretary of State and failed US presidential candidate being sycophantically nodded at by our former Prime Minister while she warned Australia about foreign political interference. Mm. You know, and I quote, I quote, this is what Hillary, this is what Hillary said. I would hope that Australia would stand up against efforts under the radar, as we say, to influence Australian politics and and policy. You must not let that happen. It's insidious. It could eat away at the very fabric of democracy and build distrust. If you think there's a hidden hand somewhere that is buying off politicians or otherwise exercising influence, then that begins to really tear at the fabric. It sounds scary, huh? Mm. You know, it's um, but not look. She was kind enough to add. I'm hoping we'll have some American leadership once again to back you up and support you in what you need to do. So I'm glad she's not trying to influence Australian politics and tell us what we need to do. Well, we would never have uh, Americans influencing our foreign policy. No, no, no. That's 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 right. You know, it's just they're just here to help us, just like they're helping the Syrians and the Iraqis and the Afghans. It's only a half hour so. I haven't got time to, to list all the people that have helped so far even this century. But look, she, she also spoke about women in politics and industry. It was part of a mob, the mob called the Growth Faculties had a series called Women in Leadership. So she used the term the bloody and contested path for women seeking influence and power. And um, all I could think of actually because, you know, as you, James, and listeners are aware that I've been doing a lot of research into Australian defence and what's happening in the military industry here at the, you know, over the years. But that bloody and contested path would be familiar, no doubt, to Gabrielle Costigan, who recently um, was appointed CEO of BAE Systems Australia. So it'll be a bloody and contested path that she'll be, no doubt, hoping, hoping for when she oversees the integration of her company's technologies into the new F-35 missiles. Um yeah, so I don't know. There's all this like, you get this, and it's 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 a it's a fine line. But you get people look look. I don't. You get people like Julia Gillard and Hillary Clinton and this Gabrielle Costigan person, and it's all about victories for women and victories for feminism. I don't see it as that, mate. I don't really. When 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 you look at who's knocking on the glass ceiling, 
to be able to give the orders to invade other countries. I don't really give a shit what gender they are, male, female or any of the others, um, or indeterminate. It's just, it's, you know, you've got the, the um, you know, talk about breaking the glass ceiling. Most of the women I know and hang out with and work with um, have a hard time seeing where the bloody glass ceiling is. We're so down low on the on the factory floor that uh, I don't think it really matters who's knocking on the glass ceiling. Yeah, and I, I think that it is something that in a lot of the mainstream, I guess, circles of, of um, discussion that that is where the discussion of feminism has really um, lobbed itself back into is the dis- this discussion of the elite and it's, it's lacking that, um, you know, real, uh, I guess, class analysis of, of what's happening and, you know, we, do, we only have to look at the track record of particularly Hillary Clinton in as um, when she was in the Obama administration, but also in some of the uh, things that she was responsible for during the 90s as well, which were things that she was campaigning against same-sex marriage. She was campaigning against abortion rights and things like that. So, oh, And she was talking about the young black blokes being super predators. You know, it just uh, drives you mad. Yeah. Well, there's another thing that I um, I noticed uh, this week that I thought would be of interest to your listeners as well is Henry Reynolds talking about Australia's perpetual war footing, uh, mm. recalling uh, an interview in September 2013 with the Defence Minister, Senator David Johnson. Mm. And it, it kind of, it lays out some, you know, very interesting kind of... Um, roles of, of how Australia sees itself developing into, uh, you know, a real minor kind of party uh, uh, player in the global sphere and yeah. quite a big player in this kind of uh, Asia-Pacific region. And I think that, you know, that's been the uh, 2% um, growth of, of what they want their defence spending to be is, is going to be matched by this budget. And we're going to see the uh, defence spending, uh, you know, as Malcolm Turnbull said uh, a couple of months ago, that he wants to see Australia rise up into the top 10 of defence spending. Yeah, well, you know, it's um, it's a bit crazy. Johnson was a, was a dick, basically. But I remember back then when he was saying we need to be ready and capable. And I think he actually said um, to answer to the needs of defence. Now... I thought defence needed to answer to the needs of Australia, mm. not the other way around. We're not there to answer to the needs of defence, but I guess they get things back to front a lot of times. It's like, you know, the talking about the the union rally, it's, it's like you often have to say to people that you work to live, you don't live to work, you know. We're saying, well, d- defence answers to our needs, we don't answer their needs. Well, it's something I, I keep feel like I have to keep saying to people that, uh, but I feel it's really important as well, is that a defence is defending. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of defending, which is what is outlined, say, in the, the, white, the white paper that came out or the budget, uh, any of the kind of rhetoric around people that uh, have anything to do with the Australian military or the Australian government. It's offensive. Yeah. And that is what has really changed, I think, over the last kind of 15 years, is it's an offensive. They want the military to be offensively engaging in things. And it's not defence. They're not defending. I mean, they can argue that they're defending 
our borders and things like that. I can argue whatever the hell they like, mate. But it, it really defies my logic of, of that actually being a defence. Yeah, and there's all this other stuff, you know, like... I've received a bit of feedback recently from folks. The last couple of shows I've talked about defence industry and, <coughs> excuse me, I gave a speech to the Mayday Rally on Sunday in, on defence industry. And I was surprised, I admit, I was surprised that people are interested in what's happened in this area. You know, normally over the years I've talked about this, or I've been talking about this since since the 80s, you know, um, but people have been saying, oh, what's going on? And they're interested to hear about it. So I reckon... So what I'm going to do from now on, and I might actually start it next, I'll start it this week, but I'll start doing a bit more for me next week, I guess, is have a little bit of a roundup on what's happening in the defence industry with a particular focus on Victoria. But I wanted to start with a new company formed this year called Defence Vision. Defence Vision. Now, that's basically the branch of another company, um, UAV Vision, which is Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Vision. Defence Vision has attempted to get more of its core work out of the military sector. It's specialising in drone-based filming and protection from what it calls rogue drones. So it's an anti-drone drone sort of system they're putting up. But mainly they work on gyroscopic stabilising systems so that as the drones buffered about by the wind and the rest of it, people would see image of drone footage, it's often a bit shaky. Um, these people stay, have drones that can, cameras that can stabilise stabilise that kind of stuff. But um, they put out a call this week um, for companies with technical knowledge and networks, quote, to assist it with marketing its products in Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Pakistan. So as part of the federal government's $3.8 billion defence export facilitation plan that you just mentioned, James, we'll be paying some international arm dealer assholes to flog military-grade imaging equipment to the repressive governments of Saudi Arabia. Mm. Well done, Australia. Well done, defence industry. But also in the news, we can't... Uh, defence news, we can't ignore this week's budgets. No surprises. Everything was already announced. But just want to run some figures by you. $1.82 billion this year on the joint strike fighters. $240 million to upgrade RAF bases to take Joint Strike Fighters, $418 million towards future submarines, $52 million for a frigate's project office in South Australia, $274 million to start the new offshore patrol ships that will eventually cost $3.6 billion, and they're just out there to pick up um, refugees trying to come to Australia. Oh, and um, $1.54 million, what's that for? Oh, housing the homeless, sorry. That's not part of the defence budget, is it? Hmm. You know, $1.454 billion. They're talking, of, talking about $52 million for frigates project officers. Don't forget the $50 million for the statue of Captain Cook. The Captain Cook. Cook statue, that's right. Look, another item of the budget attracted my attention. $441 million to get our very own National Space Agency up and running. And the reason it attracted my attention wasn't because of anything the government said about it. It came to my notice via a Lockheed Martin press release I found in the hours before dawn, the early hours before dawn on Thursday morning. Yeah, you can all have a collective sigh for what a sad fucking life your correspondent must read, reading arms companies' press releases <laughs> at 3, 4 in the morning. Vince Di Pietro, the former commander of the Australian Navy's Air Wing and naval attaché to the US and current Lockheed Martin CEO, 
put out a release saying he'd look forward to a close working relationship with the new space agency. No doubt he's looking at that $441 million pie. Meanwhile, Rod Drury, and you'll love this bloke's title, the Lockheed Martin Space Director. Mm. Now, when I grow up, I want to be a space director. I want to have the cape and I want to have fluffy, shiny undies over the top of my jeans. But I digress. Rod Drury welcomed the budget's $225 million towards making GPS signals more accurate and, quote, look forward to working with blah, 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 as well as the $39 million to update Digital Earth Australia. Now, they're a mob which compiles all the high-risk satellite images, you know, no doubt, so they can be able to tell from a distance where all the homeless people are sleeping. Um, so making it easier for the various police forces to use their high-tech whiz-bang gizmos to move people on and the rest of them. And, oh, well, hang on, I guess that'll end a growing problem of homelessness once and for all, won't it? Well, it'll certainly end the visual problem of people having to um, actually have to encounter seeing someone who's homeless. That's right, yeah, just see the police force. And when we're talking about homelessness, sorry, got a, um, some sad news at three, in the 3CR community this week. Tojo, Tojo Voicey, who started off doing some work here with um, Ruminations, the um, housing program, and then moved on to the Unitarian Half Hour, passed away this week. So um, commiserations to everyone who who knew Tojo and um, he also worked on reception here and did a whole lot of other stuff. So we don't know yet when the memorial service would be, but um, when it is, either myself or various others on 3CR will let you know. But while we're talking, I guess, births, deaths and marriages, there's no marriages to speak of. But um, James McKenzie, who you just heard before me in In Your Face, had his 21st birthday of in your face james has been doing getting in your face on 3cr for 21 years now doing all kinds of queer news to, that affect the people of melbourne and just uh, look i wish i could have asked him to hang around to talk about it on the show but just the kind of different issues that would have would have um he would have been talking about 21 years ago as he's talking about now yeah and i think i guess the changing um well, just the whole, a lot has changed over that kind of period of time and the way that, you know, it's just as important today, but particularly, you know, 21 years ago that 3CR and the ability to interact and reach communities was, you know, fundamental in being able to provide uh, an outlet for people to engage where they weren't able to before. I mean, yeah. able people able to connect a lot through, you know, on the internet and through things now, but that um, 3CR has been, been able to provide that for a lot of different communities and it's an amazing yeah. service. And it's important to remember too, folks, that when something eventually breaks through the mainstream, like equal marriage or the um, all other kinds of um, rights of people of... Sorry, just um, James's little kid just came into the studio and put me off for a moment there, little Audrey. G'day, Audrey. But, um, yeah, just when you think of whatever issue eventually makes it out into the mainstream, you've got to remember you've probably heard it first on stations, on 3CR and stations like it, you know, and, and in, in, some, in, in some future time, um, you know, who knows, people will be talking peace issues, people are recognising Palestine. I remember when the idea of a free and independent East Timor 
was a pipe dream that um, I wasn't in Melbourne at the time, but I remember going in and talking about the Timor campaign in the um, early 80s in 2XX in Canberra, and it was just like, it was a pipe dream. But now, of course, it's, um, it's, a, it's a fact. And um, I think sometimes we underestimate the impact stations like 3CR and all the organisations that work with it have in raising these raising these issues before they become before they become current so hats off again to James McKenzie in your face for 21 years uh, what else is happening in the news this week um, let me think let me think let me think we got Iran we got Iran the Ameri- America the United States, Donald Trump has pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, the one that was put together by um, uh, the previous administration, Obama, that Iran has been complying with. He just unilaterally dropped out of it. Iran has now said it's going to be still stay with the deal with various European powers. The European powers have, of course, um, said that they want, they're distressed at America pulling out unilaterally like that. And said they want to continue with the deal, but in the in the they haven't only done that, you know. They're now also asking for how much is it? Seventeen billion per head, million per head, or some such ridiculous figure for um, all the victims of nine eleven off Iran, <laughs> and Iran's got nothing to do with it. In in fact, the people they're teaming up with. To look at to look at invading Iran, the Saudis is where the hijackers came from. And uh, when we were talking about this the other day, I said, "Well, I think America should be concerned when all the victims from Iraq and Afghanistan launch a, a similar claim." Absolutely, absolutely, and so and and so they should. So then you've got um, Iran bombing Israeli positions in Syria, Israel bombing Iranian positions in Syria. You've got um, the Saudi foreign minister, I think it was, saying that um, the Iranian president was worse than Hitler. You've got all this kind of rhetoric going on and it's going off. So I'm not going to talk about this too much now because um, no doubt, um, well, I hope I'm wrong, but I think I'm going to be talking about what's happening um, between Iran and Israel and Syria for, for weeks to come, my friends. The other thing that's happened of note of there, of course, is that... Um, Donald A. Trump, as I mentioned earlier, announced that he's moving the embassy to um, to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, basically recognising, um, in a way, recognising Jerusalem as some kind of de facto capital of Israel, which it is not. But he's doing it on the day before Nakba Day, mm. the day before the 70th anniversary of Nakba, the catastrophe, when Palestinians commemorate um, the taking of their land, basically the occupation of the territories in um, 19, 1948. And on this Nakba day in particular, when the six weeks of protests along the Gaza-Israeli border have already, I don't know how many people they've killed already, how many Palestinians have died already. Last figure I heard, it was up to, I think, 70-something. Um, but that's not a figure I'm going to be quoted that. But... This week, um, next week rather, this year, Nakba Day on the 15th of May is going to be at the um, the State Library at 9.30 until 1.30. A lot of discussion is often associated with Donald Trump insulting his, you know, saying he's a, a buffoon, an idiot, uh, these kind of things. But 
you know, an announcement like that is, that has to be nothing more than a strategic, um, you know, positioning towards Israel and a, a positioning uh, to voice opposition to Palestinian people and the Palestinian yeah. cause. I can't, it's not, can't yeah. be a coincidence that those kind of things happen. And I think that, you know, more and more that he, the people, you know, need to take Donald seriously. Oh, they need to take him seriously. I think the other thing, the reason he did it was, um, if you remember before the announcement, there was a whole lot of talk from, even from the right, not just the left, but from the right about impeaching the president. <clears throat> now, um, it's hard to believe, but as I've mentioned before in the show, you've got a whole lot of dispensationalist Christians in the United States who um, who are looking looking for a war to flare out in, in the Middle East because that would announce the second coming of the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, it, it, it's hard not to laugh about it, even though we're talking about the, the, the possible annihilation of millions of people in the coming world war. You know, and but anyway, after after Donald announced the um, move to Jerusalem, all the right wing um, dispensationalists come in behind him, and um, and we never heard anything about impeachment again. So, support the Palestinian people um, at the Nakba Day vigil, which is next Tuesday at the State Library. You know where it is at nine thirty a.m. Now, just got to run through a couple more things before we. I was just going to say, while we're on Donald Trump, I saw that uh, he sent out a press release. Oh, sorry, I mean tweet. He doesn't send out press releases <laughs> to say that the highly anticipated meeting between Kim Jong-un and myself will take place in Singapore on June 12th. We will both try to make it a very special moment for world peace. Oh, lovely. Let's give him the peace prize. Well, oh, we joked about this uh, on May Day, I think, but uh, the you know peace talks between North and South Korea... It wouldn't be surprising to see him win a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Obama won one. For we doing saw. nothing. But, you know, five more pollies back on the home front. Five more pollies are found to have been ineligible to stand for office. I'm almost ineligible to be on radio if I can't say ineligible. They're found to be ineligible to stand for office and they've stood down, you know. Is that because of their terrible politics? No, it's nothing to do with their terrible politics, mate. Now, regardless of how stupid these laws are, it's hard not to have a little chuckle. Remember when first cab off the ranks got um, got done, but he was found to be a Kiwi. Remember he the, the grace with which he immediately resigned, apologised and said, that's it, okay, I'm not going to argue about what the law says. This is the law and, and I'm out of here. Sorry, folks. I'm done and um, vacated his seat. But the Libs and Labor parties guffawed about it, about how amateurish the Greens were. And they said that this showed that they weren't suitable for election, weren't suitable for office. Sloppy, I think, was the term they used. And um, then a few Tories got busted and Shorten was all, well, what can you expect from a mob of born-to-rule mentality? And now five more Labor hacks. Surely these can't be Labor politicians. They're Labor hacks, mate. Bill Shorten assured us that Labor has an astute policy to weed out any of these kind of unforeseen circumstances. Yeah, well, Bill Shorten assures a lot of people of a lot of things, mate. I never trusted him. Never, never have, never will. But, um, but you know, as I say, the Greens did it with grace. But the other thing you could say, at least whatever else. Now, people know that Scott's a mate, am I? 
Uh, well, some people do. Everyone does now. But um, he was doing something in the Senate. Like, even if you didn't support the Greens or you hated the Greens or whatever, you knew who the bastard was. He was doing his job. I'm not even going to say these people's names <laughs> because until they were ruled ineligible, I'd never heard of a lot of them. <laughs> you know, the, the one from the ACT I did, uh, I've got to admit, but the other four, who are these nothing burgers? <laughs> what are they doing in the Senate? Sitting at there, creaming the bloody public purse, saying bugger all, and the first you hear about them is when they're not eligible for office. It's, um, you know, anyway... And, and and still, they sort of the Labor Party fought for him and had to go to the High Court. And I think what we need in this Parliament, talking about the, the grace that the Greens reside with, is a little more bloody grace and class. And I mean class in the real sense. Instead of the pigs at the trough, blame everyone but me, look over there, absolutely absolute lying and hypocritical arse-licking bullshit we've unfortunately gotten used to from the likes of Turnbull and Shorten and everyone. So, like everybody else, um, we've ha been having a look at the off-quoted Section 44 of the Australian Constitution, but with a mate of mine, g'day Matt, kept reading to Section 48, which is called Penalty for Sitting When Disqualified. No one's talking about this. Until, and it's, quote, this is from the Australian Constitution, so I should use an appropriately grave voice. Until the Parliament otherwise provides, any person declared by this Constitution to be incapable of sitting as a Senator or as a member of the House of Reps shall, for every day on which he so sits, be liable to pay the sum of £100 to any person, any person who sues for it in any court of competent jurisdiction. That means you and me. Any lawyers out there want a good brief, I guarantee your court costs. Seriously, anyone wants a good brief to take some of these arseholes to court... Not for, Scott. Not Well, I mean, Scott will just go bankrupt. He's fine. He, he wasn't creaming the, the... He was putting every cent he made back into the movement. So he's got nothing. He owns a laptop and a, and a couple of nice suits. <laughs> you know, he's still renting a house. But, but all these people have been creaming the public purse when you never heard of the dickwads. Let's take them to court. Let's take them to court and sue them for 100 quid a day for every day they sat. So anyone want to be involved in that? Any briefs? Get in touch with me. Okay, it's 3CR, um, 855 on your AM dial. My name's Jacob. This has been a Friday rave. You've been sitting here listening to me and James rave on at you for half an hour. And we're just about to hand over to the Suiso. Come right in and um, I'm out of here. I'll talk to you next week when we'll be start rabbiting on about the radio thon. We're going to ask you to stick your hands in your in your pockets for. But until then, um, be good and be careful. That's all from me. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.